This is what clued me in that something serious was going on. She had this coughing fit and started having circumoral cyanosis, and then she coughed up pink, frothy sputum. And that's when I was like, this is not good. Go ahead and call a rapid response. Welcome to the Rapid Response RN Podcast, helping you keep your finger on the pulse of your patient's condition with real-life stories from the front lines of nursing. This podcast can help you sharpen your assessment skills, improve your ability to recognize the signs and symptoms of your patient's decline, be inspired to speak up and advocate, and know how to jump into action to promote the best outcome for your patients. Hey, everybody. I'm your host, Sarah Lorenzini, a rapid response nurse and educator who loves telling stories to teach critical thinking. Today we are talking about a crazy diagnosis that I think we see more than we realize. Takasubo cardiomyopathy has some wild pathophysiology, and I can't wait to break it down for you. But first, I have a few announcements. My course, Rapid Response and Rescue, is up and running. Thank you to those of you that have purchased it and written to tell me about how helpful it's been. Here's one of my favorite responses from a listener. Lydia from Canada says, I am constantly looking for ways to improve my nursing practice and better care for my patients. And this rapid response course was exactly what I needed. This course gave me the confidence to step into a new role of responding to emergencies as an ICU nurse within my hospital. But it would also be great for any nurse who wants to know how to catch and respond to changes in the patient's condition. If you would like to sharpen your assessment skills and grow as a nurse, this course is definitely for you. Thank you, Lydia. That, that is why I made this course, to empower you to feel like you can approach any emergency with confidence. So I have a coupon code for $10 off the course for my listeners. Come find me on Instagram at the Rapid Response RN and DM me the word podcast, and I will send you the coupon code and a free rapid assessment guide that I made. And I try to check my Instagram every day. So if you ever have any questions or have a suggestion for a topic, send me a DM. <laughs> I'd love to meet you and I'm happy to answer your questions. That's why I started the podcast. All right. So that's all I've got for announcements. Let's dive into this rapid response call. I can't even begin to tell you how fast this patient declined. So try and listen to the story as if you didn't know that she had Takasubo cardiomyopathy. Imagine you're the primary nurse. What would you have thought was going on? Because it was not obvious at first. So I got this call from the nurse asking if I could come see her patient. We call these nurse consults at my hospital. That's when the patient isn't crashing, but the nurse just wants another set of eyes on their patient or help advocating or just have a question about something with their patient. We get about as many nurse consults as we do rapid response calls, and I love them. The way I see it, Rapid responses prevent code blues, and nurse consults prevent rapid responses. Sometimes. <laughs> but in this patient's case, she declined so quickly, we had to ultimately activate the entire rapid response team to get the resources she needed to prevent her from arresting. So the nurse says, hey, Sarah, I, I didn't want to call rapid response because the patient vital signs aren't that bad, and she's awake and alert and oriented times four, but I can't get her to stop vomiting. And her blood pressure, well... I've given everything I have ordered, and it's still like 180 systolic. She just doesn't look good, and this is very different than how she's been all day. She was supposed to go home soon. She's one day post-op, a lap cholecystectomy, and she's been pretty stable, but something's going on. 
So when I got to her room, the patient was kind of hyperventilating, definitely anxious, and her blood pressure at that point was 190 over 100. The nurse had already called the doctor and got a PRN Zofran for her. She'd given that for the nausea. She'd given a beta blocker and IV hydralazine. I mean, she was doing all the right things, but the patient still was not turning the corner. She was kind of like cough, gagging, dry heaving. So I walked up, introduced myself, and she was saying that she just couldn't get a good breath in. So put yourself in our shoes. This is a post-op laparoscopic belly surgery with a history of anxiety and anxiety attacks who is now having some nausea and feeling anxious. Not too out of the ordinary, but the whole can't catch your breath stuff, that was unclear if the etiology was from an anxiety attack or something physically going on with her lungs. The husband said that she does this sometimes and she takes a lot of medication for her anxiety and she's been really stressed about the surgery and worried about things at home. So I was talking with the patient and her husband and I put her on my portable monitor to see what her rhythm was and her SpO2. She was in sinus tack, rate of about 115, and her pulse ox was 96%. Her skin was warm and dry, but her lung sounds were wet when I listened. Then, and this is what clued me in that something serious was going on, she had this coughing fit and started having circumoral cyanosis, and she coughed up pink, frothy sputum. And that's when I was like, this is not good. Go ahead and call a rapid response. In the time it took the ICU nurse practitioner to get there, maybe two minutes, the patient started desatting into the 80s. She was previously on room air, so I put her on a non-rebreather, and her SP2 came up to a whopping 89%. She was still coughing, so we were intermittently taking her mask off for her to spit out this pink-tinged sputum. She was alert, wide-eyed, and talking to me, and then started progressing towards being somewhat somnolent. When the nurse practitioner came, I said, we are either going to intubate right here, right now, or I'm going to start booking it to the ICU. So she called the ICU attending, while I called the ICU charge nurse, and I said, I need a bed stat, and I'm going to be coming in hot. The attending showed up very soon after, and these were her vital signs when he arrived. Heart rate of 122, blood pressure is now 212 over 110, oxygen saturation was 90% on a non-rebreather, and her respiratory rate is now in the 40s. I said, Doc, she is a different patient than she was five minutes ago. She's no longer responding to us. She's pale, diaphoretic. She's got this circumoral cyanosis. This is the flashiest flash pulmonary edema I have ever seen. She declined so fast. He said, all right, well, we've got a sat in the 90s. I'd rather intubate in the ICU. It's just one floor up. So I kicked the bed into gear and booked it to the ICU. We gave RSI drugs and intubated within a minute of arrival. Great teamwork. But her SpO2 did not improve upon intubation. In fact, it continued to drop. And she had so much pink frothy sputum coming out of her ET tube. I started a nitroglycerin drip as the nurse practitioner did a bedside echo to see what her heart was doing. She lays the probe on her chest and says, whoa, she is really hypokinetic. Like the left side is barely moving. But she wasn't given a ton of fluids to overload her heart. So we're all thinking, oh man, she must have had a big old heart attack to make her heart have such poor contractility. But she never had chest pain. However, Women often don't have the classic left-sided chest pain with their acute coronary syndromes. Her blood pressure just kept climbing and climbing, even after the RSI drugs and sedation we had started. 
So I ended up maxing out the nitroglycerin drip and we finally got her blood pressure under control. We had an EKG and it did show SC segment changes and leads V3 through V6. So classic anterolateral MI, which would explain the hypokinesis on the left side of the heart. We also hooked her up to some hemodynamic monitoring with the arterial line and her cardiac index was 0.8. Not good. So my shift ended and I went home thinking, she had a huge heart attack and I'm praying that her cardiac cath went well and that her heart wasn't too far gone. The next day I came back to visit her and her husband and they had done the cardiac cath overnight showing completely clean coronaries. And the cardiologist felt like she had Takasubo cardiomyopathy. They had changed up her drips and now she's on a low-dose inodilator. Pretty sure it was known. That was on a Saturday. The following Tuesday... She was awake and alert and ready to be extubated. She ended up making a full recovery and walking out of the hospital later that week. Now that is crazy to go from a hypokinetic left ventricle with an EF of 10%, flash pulmonary edema and near respiratory arrest to discharge from the hospital a week later. That is awesome. <laughs> so now let's talk about what in the world is Takasubo cardiomyopathy. It's also called broken heart syndrome but that isn't the most accurate term. I think the term stress-induced cardiomyopathy is more all-encompassing because there are many stressors that can cause this acute onset cardiomyopathy, both emotional and physical. Definitely grief or any life-altering event, hence where it got the layman's name, broken heart syndrome, but also stressors like infection, respiratory failure, autonomic instability, endocrine abnormalities, surgery, neurological disorders, even some medications when taken in excess can cause this acute cardiomyopathy to develop. Our patient had a combination of a physical stressor, her abdominal surgery, and the emotional stress of being away from her child and being worried about managing her responsibilities at home after surgery. She was very stressed going into surgery and then post-op developed heart failure from the surge of hormones that stress caused. So where does the name Takasubo come from? Well, I have looked it up for you. A Takasubo is a pot used by Japanese fishermen to catch an octopus. It has a narrow neck and the bottom of the pot is like ballooned out. And the left ventricle resembles the shape of the Takasubo when the stress-induced cardiomyopathy develops. There's growing evidence that the excessive dump of epinephrine from sympathetic nervous system activation could be the cause of this stretching out and dilating of the ventricle. As you know, with any dilated cardiomyopathy, if it happens on the right side of the heart, you have inhibited ability to get blood through to the lungs and you start to see symptoms of blood backing up to the periphery with JVD and peripheral edema. But with left-sided dilated cardiomyopathy, the blood can't effectively make its way out of the left side of the heart to perfuse the body. So now fluid starts to back up in the lungs. Fluid in the lungs produces shortness of breath and hypoxia. Hers was so severe that she was coughing up pink, frothy, blood-tinged sputum. That's called pulmonary edema. And in her case, flash pulmonary edema, since it came on suddenly and abruptly. So how are you supposed to know it's Takasubo cardiomyopathy and not acute coronary syndrome? Well, this is a diagnosis of exclusion. 
She sure looked like a stimmy at first. Shortness of breath. We didn't get the troponin back till later, but her troponin was elevated. Her EKG looked like a stimmy. Her left heart was all stretched out like ischemic hearts do sometimes. But the cardiac cath was clean. The coronaries were not the problem. Something else caused the heart to balloon out and be hypokinetic. So let me stress this again. (laughs) All pun intended. Stress-induced cardiomyopathy is never an obvious diagnosis at first. It's a rule out the other possible causes. And then eventually, if all the pieces fit together to form the signs and symptoms and diagnostic criteria for Takotsubo cardiomyopathy, then you can call it that. Okay, so... Once you have the diagnosis of Takasubo, how do you treat it? Well, it kind of depends which variant of Takasubo cardiomyopathy you're dealing with. Is the right side of the heart affected? Is there any obstruction to the outflow tract of the left ventricle? Uh, Where is the hypokinesis localized to? But to speak in generalities, you just have to give enough inotrope to make the heart squeeze more effectively, but don't overdo it on the sympathomimetics. That may have been what overstressed the heart in the first place. If excessive sympathetic tone got the heart into this predicament, inotropes could actually exacerbate the problem. So titrate with caution or go with like a low-dose milrinone. We were initially using nitroglycerin for the flash pulmonary edema. Nitroglycerin is a vasodilator, which reduces preload and even reduces afterload in high doses. Anything to make it easier for the weak heart to move blood forward so it doesn't back up. So let's summarize. Our patient developed stress cardiomyopathy, also known as Takasubo cardiomyopathy after an abdominal surgery. Her initial symptoms were shortness of breath and nausea. Other people often experience chest pain, syncope, arrhythmias, palpitations, her heart became acutely stretched out and dilated, causing its contractility to decrease. The poor pump caused blood to back up in the lungs. Fluid started to acutely fill her lungs, which presented with the classic signs and symptoms of flash pulmonary edema. Those are shortness of breath, elevated blood pressure greater than 180 systolic, pink or blood-tinged frothy sputum, and wet lung sounds. Because of her hypoxia, we placed her on a non-rebreather mask, which did not fix her hypoxia, and ultimately we had to intubate, which also did not fix her hypoxia initially. But with medical management, a ton of nitroglycerin that decreased her preload and afterload, we were able to get better gas exchange. Even though the EKG showed ST segment elevation, the cardiac cath showed clean coronaries, which led us to the diagnosis of Takasubo cardiomyopathy. To medically manage this temporary condition, we just supported the heart with a little inotrope until her ejection fraction could improve and she could sustain a good cardiac output without it. A couple questions I know you're thinking. Why not Lasix? If the lungs are wet, diurese. And usually yes, but with Takasubo cardiomyopathy, the pathophysiology is not that of fluid overload. It's just that the fluid is in the wrong place. Often these patients are intravascularly dry and their lungs only sound wet because the fluid can't effectively make its way out of the lungs through the left side of the heart and onto the rest of the body. Lasix can actually make things worse if the patient isn't truly systemically volume overloaded. 
mean, there may be a time and a place for Lasix, but it's not every single time. There's more factors to think about. Next question I'm imagining you're thinking is, so how can I know if my patient's symptoms are from a heart attack or Takotsubo cardiomyopathy? And the answer is, you can't. <laughs> if a patient has chest pain, it would be the wrong approach to assume it's from stress-induced cardiomyopathy because they've been anxious or under a lot of stress. If it looks like a duck, quacks like a duck, you have to assume it's a duck until proven otherwise. So if your patient has chest pain, shortness of breath, elevated troponins, EKG changes, well, it's a STEMI that needs to go to the cath lab. I think that we are finding that Takotsubo cardiomyopathy is more common than we had once believed. For my ER nurses listening, you won't see many cases, or so you think, because you will only see them pre-cardiac cath lab, assuming that they're STEMIs. But in a study in 2018 by Shams Yahasen and Per Tonval, they reported that approximately 2% of all patients presenting with clinical manifestations of ACS actually had Takasubo. And if you looked at the study with just women having clinical ACS, it was more like 10% as the condition is more prevalent in women. Crazy, huh? So one out of 10 of your female chest pain, acute coronary syndrome workups in the ED are actually stress-induced cardiomyopathy. I've got to say, this diagnosis is fascinating to me. One Friday, your cardiac index is 0.8 with an EF of 10 to 15%, and the next Friday, you're being discharged home. That is wild. So here are my final takeaways. Takasubo cardiomyopathy is stress-induced ballooning of the heart muscle causing reduced cardiac output. Most patients recover as long as we manage them well when their heart is sucking at its job. Management depends on the severity of the cardiomyopathy. Mild cases get ACE inhibitors and beta blockers. Severe cases get intubated and IV inotropes. Just be gentle with those inotropes. The heart doesn't need to be a super pumper right now. Just make sure the kidneys and vital organs are getting perfused. Even if you never encounter a case of Takasubo cardiomyopathy, you will encounter patients with heart failure and possibly flash pulmonary edema. Think about the flow of blood through the heart and what signs and symptoms to anticipate if the pump is not moving blood forward effectively. Know to look for those respiratory symptoms for left-sided heart failure and systemic edema for right-sided heart failure. And think about how the meds that you are passing to your patient are helping their forward flow of blood. And the most important takeaway is, trust your gut, my friends. The primary nurse knew something was wrong. Her patient was different. This was more than just anxiety. But even without a ton of data to back up her gut feeling, she spoke up and advocated to the physician and utilized her resource of the rapid response team to get more eyes on her patient. And it was just in time. So Caitlin, if you are listening, strong work, my friend. Your advocacy saved this patient's life. Well, that's it for today's episode. If you like this podcast, I'd love to hear from you. You can shoot me an email with questions or comments, and it would mean so much if you could take a moment to write a review on iTunes, as this helps more listeners find this podcast. Thanks for listening, and I hope you learned something that will save a life. Remember, nursing is a team sport, so trust your intuition and don't give up advocating until you are confident you've done what's right by your patient. 
You've been listening to the Rapid Response RN Podcast. The views and opinions expressed on this show are that of Sarah Lorenzini and hers alone. They are not intended as medical advice and should not take the place of your institution's policies or procedures. Evidence-based practice is ever-changing, and your patient's care should reflect the current best practice. If you want to get in contact with Sarah, you can find her at rapidresponsernpodcast at gmail.com or on the Rapid Response RM Podcast Facebook page, as well as the podcast website, rapidresponsern.com.